Woe is me. Book One of the Horror Wars. Chapter 10. The Wall. We had a witch up here once, Wyatt said, leading the others down an overgrown fire road, his hunting rifle hanging from a shoulder strap. He wore a battered straw cowboy hat and old hiking boots that laced up almost to his knees. A witch? How? Gus answered, walking beside him in his black fatigues. He cradled a shotgun in his arms. You're surrounded by water out here. Wasn't that the whole point? Y'all broke your backs digging that channel. Mac walked between them, sullen and silent, wearing hand-me-downs from the dead kid's room in the old house. The fleece hoodie and jeans fit surprisingly well. The boots he'd still have to grow into, so he wore his sneakers instead. The backpack, lighter and filled with more sensible items, rode easily on his back. Bunny paced quietly at his side. We sure did, Gus. Ruby calls it the moat. But we can't run a perimeter around everything, especially since our territory keeps expanding. We're responsible for almost 16 square miles now. Never seen a witch, Gus said. You're lucky, Ed said. Worse than trolls and ogres all rolled together. They're the clever ones, and you never knew what it can do. But we gotta be brave. We gotta keep our hearts and souls together through this or it'll all go to hell. Right, Mac? He looked sidelong at the boy and sent him a brave smile. Mac dropped his gaze, face flushed. He couldn't talk about Lacey yet. He'd spent the last two days in that attic room, raging at the walls, screaming and crying and carrying on. He couldn't get the images out of his head, of Lacey pitching forward with a grunt, of Agent Roke zipping the bag closed over her trembling face, Randy and Seth pulling at screaming Mac and barking Bunny trying to lead them away. Roke had no more use for them. She'd just slung the bag over her shoulder as a transport chopper landed in the field behind her. She'd loaded Lacey on board, and it had disappeared to the south, leaving the sky empty. What happened to us? Huh, Mac? Gus asked him. Families and friends all gone. No sense of purpose now, just... Like... Fighting for every breath. I guess we're drowning. We're all drowning here, and we don't even know it. Mac couldn't look at him. He couldn't bear any more pain. With a sigh, Gus clapped Mac on the shoulder. So what happened to your witch? He asked Wyatt. Oh, it was a real nightmare. It must have been dropped inside the moat with us, but we couldn't ever find it. We just kept discovering the blood and bones of its victims. It hid during the day, who knows where. And then at night it'd sneak out and kill something. Or someone. Lasted weeks. We were all cooped up in the house with shotguns and water balloons awake all night. But then one night I figured out how to unlock the barn and get inside and all the livestock started screaming. And that's when Danny... Well, he had a horse he loved, so he was the first one in there, ran ahead. And the witch was just waiting for him. Robin appeared on the road ahead, leaning against a tree and picking a rock out of her running shoes. About two more dips ahead, boys. Like 600 yards, she reported. A whole squad of goblins. And it's even worse than before. What do you mean worse? Wyatt asked, slinging his rifle forward. I mean, they built a wall. The adults frowned, sharing a worried glance. Goblins don't build walls, Gus said. Not on their own. Witches are the only ones smart enough to even think of something like that. 
Maybe you got another one in here, Wyatt. No, that doesn't make any sense. Witches wouldn't ever stand and fight. They aren't, like, soldiers. They're terrorists. Cowards. I don't know what this is. Wyatt stopped walking, and the others fell in beside him, all lost in thought. Randy and Seth appeared on the forested slope beside the fire road, each wearing a canvas backpack and holding a long-handled wood axe. Randy nodded at Mac. They hadn't laid eyes on each other since they'd lost Lacey. Mac nodded back at him, grateful for the gesture. Randy, you stay back here now with Mac and the dog, okay? Nothing for us to do up there anyway. We already tried to draw him out, Randy answered cheerfully. Damn it, Randall. This ain't the time to take matters into your own hands. They aren't like other goblins. You'll see. How are they? Gus asked. Big and fat and hiding behind a log wall, Seth said. Wyatt scowled. I don't like the sound of that. Okay, fine. Stay here with Mac, will you? Gus and Ed, let's go take a look. Ed lifted his own rifle and rested his finger on the guard. Gus nodded, scanning the trees. Hold on, Wyatt he said. This is getting too military all of a sudden. If these goblins somehow figured out how to build walls, then maybe they figured out how to send around patrols. Get all the kids back here. All of them. Robin? Wyatt called out, but his voice died in the stillness. She had vanished. Oh, that crazy damn girl, Wyatt cursed under his breath. Randall, you see any patrols out there? Any sign of patrols? Tracks? Ambushes, uh, tripwires, uh, anything else like that? Nope, just four goblins, maybe five. They built the wall right across the road. Why? Nobody uses this road, Ed wondered. But how would they know that? asked Wyatt. The lightning cracked, and they popped into this world, and they don't know what anything looks like or where anything is. How would they know how to build a wall? Gus added. They're goblins. The three men stepped forward, slow and low to the ground. They disappeared around a bend into a wider landscape. Now come on, Randy beckoned to Mac. Quick, so we can see. Randy and Seth led Mac up the slope above the fire road. They climbed a sinuous ridgeline of rock to the high ground overlooking the valley the road traveled through. Once they cleared the trees, Mac looked at the morning sky, gray and blank, he wondered how many land scanners watched the poor, desperate humans on the ground fighting for their lives. He wondered about Dad, and Sarah, and Lacey. They all existed somewhere unreachable behind that gray veil, too. Futility welled up in him. Hey, he gasped, trying to keep up with Randy and Seth as they climbed. I don't get it. Why didn't the Bureau come after us once they took Lacey? I mean, aren't we in trouble, too? Why are we still here? Seth snorted. Are you serious? They don't care about us. It don't matter to them whether kids like us live or die. No, that ain't right, Randy said, pausing at the base of a rock outcropping. The ground fell away before him to a narrow, winding valley covered by pines. The Bureau just leaves the rural folks alone. It's kind of like an informal agreement. There aren't enough soldiers and agents to go around, so they let us do our thing, but they always keep an eye on us, too. Seems they don't mind certain kind of refugees joining us out here, but I guess a breached girl was too much. Then why don't they clear out all these goblins instead of us? Mac asked. Randy pointed down far ahead. A bare spot revealed the road, flickering with dark movement. I mean, the Nash Guard could just drop like one single bomb onto that wall and nobody gets hurt. They don't care about us, 
Seth's voice got harder with each word. No, think about it, Mac, Randy said. Look at how much land there is out here. I mean, California's big. The whole West is gigantic. Look at the horizon in every direction. They all spun slowly on their vantage point, tracking the distant mountains, the peaks and ridges, valleys and canyons. This here is like the tiniest corner of wilderness. Everything we can see from here is, say, a hundred square miles. But now, multiply that time a hundred thousand, a million. These forests go on forever. This one goes all the way up through Oregon and Washington and Canada all the way to Alaska. The world's too big to guard it all. So the Nash Guard and the Bureau got to choose their battles instead. But we don't get to choose ours, Seth said. Okay, there's our spot up there. He pointed at an outcropping that overlooked the road and the goblins below. Yeah, but stay low, Randy said. Why? Goblin eyes are too weak to see this far, Seth said. I'm not talking about the goblins. If Wyatt sees us up here, we're cooked. They scurried along the top edge of the rock line, tiptoeing across fissures that dropped a hundred feet away. Mac didn't let himself get dizzy. He steeled himself and tried to move as the other boys moved, head up, with the same confidence and assurance. From the outcropping, the wall the goblins had built looked like a line of shadow across the road a couple hundred yards below them. Randy scrounged in his sack for a pair of binoculars. He leaned back against the loose yellow granite and braced his foot against the roots of Manzanita, rolling the focus knob and staring at the action below. Whoa! See how big these goblins are? He handed the glasses to Seth. They got, like, actual weight. They're talking a lot more. Super goblins! Great! Seth handed the binoculars to Mac. He looked through them down below, the bright image vibrating in the glasses. He steadied his hands and squinted. The wall was made of logs hacked off to sharp points, maybe forty logs in all. A couple narrow platforms built against the back of the wall allowed two of the goblins to stand watch, looking over the edge at head height. I count six, Mac said. Six, let me see, Randy said, pulling the binoculars from him. Okay, I think we got contact. The goblins are getting riled now. They're acting like they see something down the road. Mac and Seth squinted. After a moment, Randy said almost to himself, It's so weird. They're actually talking and figuring things out. They're not just charging ahead. I don't get it. One goblin scrambled over the wall, and a long-bladed weapon was handed down to it. It walked cautiously down the road. Oh my god, that's like a, a halberd. Isn't that what they're called? These goblins don't have those little spears. They got giant axes instead. What are those things? Seth pulled binoculars away from Randy. Let me see that. Yeah. Oh, blimey. Yeah, that's different. That is a pole axe. See, you got your halberds and your pikes and your pole axes. Your halberds have a hook on the back to pull a horseman off his horse, and your pike is just a giant spear, but your pole axe is just a big axe on a big pole. Great defensive weapons, especially against formations, Mac asked Randy. What's he talking about? Who knows? He's a nerd. Shut up, Randy. It's important information, and this is a war, and in a war, every little bit we know helps. But Randy wasn't listening. Okay, it's advancing now, waving its pole axe out in front. Looks like it's pretty good with it, too. Man, I wouldn't want to have to face a couple of those. 
The crack of a rifle echoed up from the canyon. The goblin on the road below had already flown sideways into the greenery, outracing the sound waves. Its poleaxe fell on the ground. The other five goblins stood on the platform on the far side of the wall, urgently conferring, hands waving. Okay, I got a hypothesis, Seth said. Hold on, Seth, Randy said, grabbing the binoculars. It's game on down there. A goblin tumbled backward from the wall, green blood flaring up into the air from its pierced skull. The crack of the rifle shot followed, a heartbeat later. So I think once they eat, maybe they grow larger and learn to speak and make pole axes and walls. They turn into super goblins. Hobgoblins, Max said. Let's call them hobgoblins. I like that, Randy declared. I do too, Robin's voice said from the far side of the ridge, startling them. She climbed up to them and held out the severed head of a hobgoblin, green blood still dripping from its neck. Oh my god, it's huge, Randy whispered. The head was rounder and the features heavier, the pitted green skin fading to gray. And look at these tusks, Robin said. She peeled back its lip and revealed an upthrust fang as thick as a finger. This ain't no needle fang, baby goblin. How'd, how'd you even kill it? Max stammered. Robin grinned wickedly at him, chewing bubblegum. From above, she blew a bubble. So what's going on down there? It's a standoff, Randy said, smiling crookedly at Robin and shaking his head in admiration. His dark eyes and patchy beard made him look like a bandit. The wind whipped his long hair, and he tucked it behind an ear. They shot one dead on the road and blew the second one's head off. And here's the third. Robin took two big steps along the ridge and hurled the hobgoblin head back down the slope behind them. She wiped her hands on her shorts and grabbed the binoculars from Randy. And the hobgoblins are hiding behind the wall now, Randy said, kind of daring us to storm it, I guess. I wonder if we hadn't found them if they'd have built like a whole fortress, Seth studied the road with a frown. That must be what we got like deep in the Trinities, places nobody goes, the monsters are building whole empires, Robin finished, her voice harsh. They all fell silent. The standoff below lengthened. See, I'd be flanking them, Randy said. It's a bottleneck, Robin answered. The hobgoblins picked a really good spot. It's pretty much impassable unless you swing wide up that game trail switch back on the far side of the canyon. Then you can drop back in behind them, but I don't know if Wyatt even knows about that. Also, now that they're on the lookout, the hobgoblins would totally see them coming. That hillside's fully exposed. Well, get comfortable. This might take a while. I think we may be looking at a good old-fashioned siege here, Randy said. He was right. The hobgoblins showed discipline by remaining in their positions and only rarely poking ahead over the wall. Once, and only once, a log of the wall splintered under a hobgoblin's chin and it ducked its head away before they heard the rifle's report above. The hobgoblins hunkered in place behind their stout wall. An hour later, the rattle of an engine interrupted their wait. Robin stood, looking down the road with the binoculars. What are they doing now? She wondered. It's the UPS van, Seth shouted. And they got logs across its grill, Randy exclaimed. The UPS van roared into sight as he said it, eight-foot logs tied across the front. They're going to ram the wall, Seth realized. Awesome, Robin said. Seriously? Max squeaked. I mean, how? But his voice faded as the engine roared. The van hurtled ahead, dust streaming from its tires. The hobgoblins waited, crouched behind the wall. 
Only at the last moment did they realize what was about to happen. Two leapt away as the van hit the wall at about 40 miles per hour. The van stopped and lifted and rocked back as the log wall collapsed beneath it, the log snapping back and crushing the two hobgoblins still standing on the platforms. The van rolled over the fallen wall and stopped on the far side, dust billowing around it. The two surviving hobgoblins leaped forward, their pole axes clanging against the side of the van. Wyatt, within, rocked back from the steering wheel, stunned from the crash. Gus threw open the back doors, where he'd endured the collision, and stood unsteadily. He jumped out and leveled his shotgun at one hobgoblin. It flew backward in a spray of green blood. The boom followed. The last hobgoblin dropped to its knees and swayed. Ed's rifle report came from down the road, his view now clear that the wall had fallen. But the hobgoblin wasn't dead yet. It shoved its poleaxe at Wyatt, shattering the glass of the driver's side door and sending him back with a shout. He fired a pistol. Crack, crack, crack. The hobgoblin fell back and the poleaxe fell from its grasp. It snarled and tried to rise as Gus ran around the front of the van and blew its head clean off. After the shotgun's boom had echoed into silence and the dust streamed clear on the road below, Seth declared sourly, Humans for the win. Chapter 11 Dr. Vivian Her cheek burned with cold, her right cheek and right knee, her hip, all were too cold. She swam awake from dark depths. Lacey opened her eyes. Vinyl covered her. The seam of a zipper ran down her nose and chin, metal edges of its teeth scraping her lips. She lifted her hands in the dimness and pushed it away. Her cheek and knee and hip all rested on a cold metal surface. She sat up to get away from the awful cold, struggling with the vinyl bag. Her head filled with buzzing, with hissing and clacking and guttural murmurs from afar. Her heart sank. Nausea rose in its place. Monsters were nearby, surrounding her. Panic gripped her by the throat. She screamed. The sounds in her head didn't react. The monsters hadn't hurt her. They hadn't sensed her fear. She quieted herself, letting the panic ebb out of her. She pressed urgently against the bag with her hands and feet, but it only buckled into a shape she couldn't escape. Her hair lay plastered against her neck. She began to shiver and couldn't stop. She remembered. I was shot. She whispered the words aloud. Shot in the back. She laid down against the freezing metal surface and rolled her back across it, trying to find the wound. She couldn't. Something rattled at the foot of the bag. She lifted her feet and it slid into her hands. She raised her hand and looked at the shiny oblong slug the bullet that had shot her. Her body must have rejected it. Lacey laughed, a manic edge in it. The door opened. Boots marched hollowly in. She pulled away from the sound, curling into a ball. A corner of the bag by her left foot suddenly yanked sideways, and she cracked her head against the metal surface as she was dragged from the room. Pain sliced through her fractured skull. Panic electrified the pain, making it dance beneath her skin. But then she realized she didn't have to care. She gusted away her fears, doubling over, the floor sliding by beneath her. Her skull would heal itself. Whatever weirdness the Bureau had in store for her, 
Lacey knew that it could never match the endless pit of despair in her own heart. That darkness was something she could never, ever, ever face. Another door opened. The bag was turned and swept across an arc, then lifted with a swing and deposited on another cold surface. Her skull was already going numb. Thanks, Keith, a woman spoke. She sounded old, old and tired. The door closed. Young lady, the woman said with aristocratic emphasis, please sit up. Lacey didn't like the sudden iron in the woman's tone, but it didn't matter. None of this mattered anymore. Lacey slowly uncoiled, found the edge of the metal surface, and hung her legs over the edge, facing the voice. The zipper tugged down, exposing brilliant white light in halos on the ceiling. Lacey squinted as the woman's silhouette shifted before her. The zipper came down to just beneath her neck and then clicked. Only her head stuck out of the bag. The rest of her was still locked inside. Lacey stared at the woman. She was old all right, stooped and spotted. She wore a white lab coat and corduroy pants with clogs. Her gray hair was pinned back in a bun. Glasses hung from a chain around her neck. She stood beside her desk, a messy pile of papers and tablets and folders, consulting a file in her hand. I am Dr. Vivian. You are my subject. Listen to me and do what I say and we will get along. We find we have better compliance from our subjects, Dr. Vivian recited, when we tell them about what they're doing here. It's when we don't explain ourselves that people get stubborn and things get ugly, and we don't want that. Now, she said, looking again at the file in her hand, you are Lacey Udell. You had a breaching event on September 4th, an admixture of troll blood. That's very rare. Over 98% of breaches are from goblins. People don't normally survive trolls. Your troll blood percentage is nearly 0.1%. That's a good number. It shouldn't drive you too mad. And you're young, which helps. You recovered from a bullet wound that perforated your aorta in less than 20 minutes. We can work with these time frames. All in all, I'd say you're as good a candidate as we have for our new program. Dr. Vivian studied Lacey's face. She frowned. Do you understand what I'm saying to you, Lacey? Or are you already too far gone? You don't look like someone who will break. What do you think, Lacey? Can we break you? You can't hurt me anymore, Lacey husked. She began shivering again, and this time couldn't stop. That's the spirit. Look, young lady, things will be tough, but here's the part you have to remember. This is a war. We are all in danger. We have to use whatever means we can to survive. People who get breached. We have a program here. We need to crack the mysteries of these monsters. What are they really made of? What can hurt them? What can kill them? Lacey only stared at her, her face a cold mask, her mind empty. Those of you who've been breached are heroes. You've already laid down your lives so that others can still live. What happens between now and the end is a service you can perform so that those you love will survive another day. Now, isn't that worth it? 
Dr. Vivian made a note in the file and closed it with a snap. Questions? Lacey's breath fluttered in her chest. She looked at the old woman the same way she regarded the goblins and trolls. Dr. Vivian grimaced minutely and patted Lacey's shoulder. There, there, we'll notify your family some day of your sacrifice, but not now. Now we must be strong. Please lie down. These first tests are easy, just like a normal doctor's exam, finding your baseline. Head up here. That's it. I'm going to unzip you now and put you in these restraints, for my safety and yours. No, now behave yourself. It'll be fine. Don't pull away from me. If we have a problem, I'll ask Keith to join us again. Understand? So let's just do this nice and easy so that we can learn about what happens when you mix a little bit of troll into a girl. Lacey laid down, nervous as a fawn, her arms across her body and hands tucked between her legs. Dr. Vivian pulled the zipper all the way down and stripped the bag off her. Lacey wore nothing more than a hospital gown. Before she could straighten it, Dr. Vivian ran a black Velcro strap across her arm, pulling her down. She did the same to Lacey's other arm, then both wrists, knees, and ankles. Lacey lay pinned back against the exam table, the metal once again burning cold. Now, Dr. Vivian said, pen poised, tell me about your menstrual cycle. See, look here, Dr. Vivian said on day three, turning her screen around so it would face the girl strapped down on the table. Here is a sample of your blood. Notice how much it moves. The screen displayed a grayscale video of Lacey's blood on a slide under a microscope. The drop of blood teemed with activity. Dr. Vivian cranked the resolution down. You'll see that your blood has not been replaced or infected by the troll blood. Rather, it exists alongside it she sniffed. Dr. Vivian increased the magnification to the cellular level. Plasma ran across the screen, carrying gray shadows of several shapes. Here, see, that fat one there, that's hemoglobin, one of your red blood cells. Here comes another one, and right next to it is that thing. Here, you see it. Lacey looked. A fuzzy ball of some kind rolled along beside the hemoglobin before disappearing from the screen. Soon she spotted another one, then another. Now, normally we would isolate a pathogen in the blood using a blood-spinning machine that separates the pieces into different kinds. But when we run your blood or any other breached blood through phoresis, it just comes back a mush. We can't isolate batches of these particles. We don't know what they are. Nobody does. We can't grab them. Because we can't isolate them, we've had to try to measure them more indirectly. See, look at this one. We can glimpse as it goes by that it looks like a fuzzy ball, like it's out of focus. If we fire a laser at it, we receive a fuzzy signal in response. If we take an X-ray or a CAT scan or any other snapshot, it comes back blurry. And that's all of it. All we know of what the monsters are made of. And you're no different. It's lurking in your blood, too. Lacey attended to the doctor's words like a convict hearing her sentence. Oh, look at this! Dr. Vivian pulled the screen away and lifted something off her desk. 
She held a severed goblin hand in a plastic sample bag. This is a scale, she said, pointing to a small white plastic oblong with an LED readout. She placed the sample bag on it and turned the display toward Lacey. The numbers flickered in random order, unable to settle on a consistent result. She picked it back up. You can certainly feel it. It's real. It has weight. But I'm hard-pressed to say how much. I can't even really say what color that hand is. I see muddy blues and blacks and purples and greens and grays. I can't characterize it. Somehow this entire domain of creatures exists outside the scientific model. Frankly, young lady, she said, putting the sample bag aside and pulling gloves on, it leads to entirely unscientific thoughts. The only thing that makes sense to me lately is that this matter that makes up their blood and bones and skin is not really here. It's only imperfectly transmitted from the monster's plane of existence to our own. Do you understand? It's like they're projected here, like a movie. Our world is the screen, but there's a lot of interference in the way, so much that you can't quite see what the original image is. Each day a maelstrom comes and lightning cracks the two worlds open and monsters step through. But something about them doesn't quite fit in this universe, so we get fuzzy balls instead. Do you understand? Lacey nodded. Good. Dr. Vivian pulled a tray on wheels to her elbow and lifted a scalpel. She put a face mask on with a practiced sweep of her fingers and rolled forward on her stool to Lacey's side. She focused an overhead light onto Lacey's right elbow. She bent down, scalpel poised. Lacey's breath shuddered in her throat. A knock at the door made her pause. Yes, Dr. Vivian called out. Keith opened the door. Lacey flung her head to the side to avoid what was being done to her elbow. She looked at Keith's fat, square face and his bored eyes. Got him. Him, Dr. Vivian said. Which one, Keith? I've got a long list today. Goblin breached. Uh, military. Your old friend. Keith looked back at the man in a hospital gown he'd brought. He consulted a clipboard. Captain Monroe. Lacey gasped. Captain Monroe stood there, tall but stooped now, his skin looking ashen, his eyes sunken. When their eyes connected, recognition swept through him. Oh no. No. He cradled one of his arms in his hand, his elbow. A pad of gauze covered the outside joint. Not the girl. No. You leave her alone. His voice had lost none of its quiet authority, but the words rang hollow. Don't put her through this, Vivian. What? Why? Dr. Vivian blinked at him through her glasses. Isn't it for the greater good? You know all about sacrifice, don't you, Ben? We all do, he answered. Please take a seat. Keith, you may go. Everyone here knows how to behave themselves. The big orderly locked the door behind him as he went. Dr. Vivian turned to her computer. Captain Monroe and Lacey couldn't stop staring into one another's eyes. What happened to you? She mouthed, shaking her head in dismay. Then, louder, It's only been like four days. 
Captain Monroe dropped his gaze with a brief sigh and sat. He put his elbow onto the tray and Dr. Vivian slid a pad of gauze beneath it. She eyed him carefully. So you know each other. How strange. Captain Monroe frowned, swallowing bitterness. Yes, it is. Very strange. I mean, I was there when she was breached. It was my team. Maybe my bullet. He faced Lacey, his eyes jagged with grief. I told you to run. Oh, she did. She did run. She led us on a merry chase halfway to Nevada. But we couldn't just let a troll-breached girl like this go. No, she's far too valuable. What happened to you? Lacey asked Captain Monroe, her voice wavering. Why are you here? Were you attacked again? Dr. Vivian laughed, a humorless heh heh. Yes, Ben. Would you like to tell her how you were breached? It was a firefight, Captain Monroe spoke in a tight voice, his eyes down. I was behind a bunch of goblins when a chopper shot a rocket at them. The shrapnel went right through their bodies and into my arm. He held up the arm bandaged at the elbow. She saw that the pinky of that hand was dark, its nail growing into a talon. I'm so sorry, Lacey said. Captain Monroe shrugged, his eyes sliding sideways. But tell her when, Dr. Vivian insisted. She thinks this just happened. After a short silence, Captain Monroe took a deep breath. That was just over two years ago. Lacey blinked. Two years? Then you were breached when I met you? Yeah, I always kept the nail filed down, covered my hand as much as I could. He hid from us a long time until a report came in from a Colonel Brinley accusing him of all kinds of things. So we took a closer look at our old friend, and a new urine test caught him just last week, Dr. Vivian said. You were a very bad boy for such a long time, weren't you, Ben? I was a good soldier. The whole time I was a good soldier. I should be living proof that the breached are still human, that we can still be trusted. Oh, spare me. I don't need to hear another Milo Twist comic book story from you. You are at Greenblood now. Every word you say is suspect. You can use us, Captain Monroe grated, his voice shaking. We aren't the enemy. I did my job, and I did it well. I didn't do anything wrong. The only thing that changed is I eat my meat raw and get nightmares every night. That's all the goblin blood did to me. I never hurt a fly. Your wounds don't heal, Lacey looked at the bandage on his elbow. Only troll blood confers such properties, Dr. Vivian said. Now poor Ben gets cut and stays cut, I'm afraid. Now, no more chatter, you two. We're behind schedule today, and I have reports to do. Dr. Vivian bent over Lacey's arm and sliced the outside joint of her elbow open, an incision an inch long. Lacey cried out in pain, green blood running down her arm. A knock on the door. Keys unlocked it. Keith stuck his head in. Phone for you, doctor. It's the admiral. He held the door open. Dr. Vivian sighed in exasperation and dropped the scalpel on the tray with a clatter. Just can't get anything done today. Well, excuse me, you two. I'll be right back. She left with Keith, who locked the door behind them.
Lacey sobbed from the pain. Captain Munro bent over her, holding a gauze pad over the wound. I'm sorry I couldn't save you. So sorry. Couldn't even save myself. Oh, Lacey. Oh, girl. I got you. We got each other now. He put his other hand on her shoulder and leaned his head against hers. His soothing voice reached in from the edges of her agony. She grew calm, the pain going dull, replaced by a trembling in her limbs. She smiled her relief to him, eyes swimming with tears. Tell me, he said. Hugo, how is he? Did they take him too? I don't know. I don't think so. He's still up and kicking, as far as you know. She nodded. As far as I know. What are we gonna do, Lacey? He shook his head in despair, his voice cracking. I thought I could be strong for this. All they're gonna put me through, but I don't know. Now that you're here, she suddenly realized something. That's why you wouldn't let them kill me. Under the bridge, you were willing to stand up to them because you knew. Because you were breached, too. She hadn't understood why he'd made such sacrifices for her until now. You knew what it was like. You knew I wasn't dead or under control of the monsters or whatever they say. He nodded, his eyes filled with conviction. I knew you were still a girl. Chapter 12 The Cedar Tree and the Side Porch I forgot, Max said aloud the next morning in the split second before the goblin saw him. He forgot to do what Wyatt had asked. Last night over dinner, he had asked Mac to warn the other scouts of the storm, but Mac forgot. He forgot the entire storm himself, waking at sunrise to a note from Randy that they had all gone down the old fire road to retrieve the UPS van with Ed. He had grabbed an apple and put on the tool belt they gave him for protection. Without another thought, he'd hurried across the wet fallen leaves down the road, forgetting why they were wet, picking his way across a fallen tree and rounding a bend only to confront a trio of goblins a hundred feet away walking up the road toward him. They saw him a split second after he saw them. With a chirrup and a snarl, they lowered their spears and came after him at a full charge. Max stumbled back. He ran back around the bend to the fallen tree, a cedar with broad green boughs splintered on the ground. It blocked the entire road and had just taken him a full minute to get past, climbing over the broken logs. Now, he didn't have a minute. The fallen branches were a maze of logs and cedar boughs reaching higher than his head. They clawed at him as he pulled himself through them, terrified that the goblins would fall on him with their spears before he could win free. Mac balanced on one log and jumped to another as the goblins rounded the bend, screeching at him. They charged into the branches of the fallen tree at full speed, as if they thought it would dissolve like cobwebs. One goblin hit a solid branch and bounced back with a grunt, falling on its side. The other two snared themselves deep in the wreckage and began to squall, enraged, their spears tangled. Mac hesitated, surprised by their idiocy. The one on the ground scrambled to its feet and began to pick its way more carefully forward, under the boughs. It called out something harsh to the others, but they only responded with irate hisses, fighting even harder against the branches that snared them. The hammer hung heavy from Mac's tool belt. Without allowing himself to think any more about it, he pulled it out and leapt back across the log, 
ran lightly along its length and swatted the ensnared goblin upside its head. It screamed and flailed in the branches, its jaw knocked half off its face. Mac took a deep breath. He knew he couldn't think about it. He darted forward again and swung the hammer down hard. The steel head disappeared disconcertingly deep into the goblin's skull, and the wicked thing shuddered. Mac pulled back, shouting with disgust. He wiped away the green blood that had spattered across the hammer's handle. The other goblins cursed at him, one crawling deliberately toward him under a fallen log. Come on, then, Mac shouted, his voice cracking. I ain't afraid of you! The nearest goblin closed in, snaking through the wreckage, lifting its spear up to climb the pile of logs Mac stood upon. Mac leaned down and grabbed its spear by the shaft beneath the blade. The goblin looked up with a squawk of surprise and feebly tried to pull its spear from Mac's grasp. With a laugh, he tore the spear from the goblin's claws and hurled it away. Ain't so tough now! What you gonna do without your spear? The goblin snarled and crouched, burying its needle fangs and scrambled up the logs. Mac bellowed in fear and kicked it solidly in the chest, pushing it from the log pile. It fell awkwardly to the ground, but immediately scrambled back up the logs. Mac wildly swung his hammer. The goblin swiped for him and the hammer connected, tearing its lower arm completely off with a crack. The goblin screamed, leaving itself open to a killing blow. But Mac was already losing his nerve in this fight. The sensation of dismembering the goblin revolted him. He couldn't find the impulse to close in and finish it as he knew he should. Stay back now! Just... just why you always gotta try to kill us? The goblin's green eyes squinted murderously at Mac, and its blunt nose sneered, showing its fangs. It held its ruined arm against its chest and started climbing up toward him again, the third goblin still entangled but crashing forward behind it. Mac dropped the hammer and lifted a broken log as thick as his leg. I said stay back! He hurled it at the goblin below. The log hit the monster diagonally across its body from shoulder to opposite hip, crushing it against the ground. It writhed beneath, squawking. With a furious shout, Mac jumped from the log pile onto the log across the goblin's chest, killing it instantly. His face squeezed shut in disgust as he saw how much green blood splashed onto his shoes. My favorite shoes! The last goblin dragged its legs through the clutter below but only entangled itself more. It waved its spear at him. You're the stupid one, ain't you? Mac said, staying clear of the slicing spear blade. Don't have the sense to get out of there. Well, I'm glad you don't. He retrieved his hammer, then realized how little it would help. Sure could use a bow. Sure wish I could just set this whole tree on fire and walk away. But I can't. Mac studied the goblin, trying to figure out how he was going to kill it. It raved at him, frustrated that he was so close but still out of reach. It waved its spear in crude jabs, its little clawed hands gripping it tight. There was no fluidity to its jerking movements at all, like a marionette in the hands of a child. Jab, 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 slash, hiss, jab, jab. Okay, I think I'm starting to see something here. Mac pulled out his hammer and edged forward. His other hand darted out and grabbed the spear, but the goblin was fast. It pulled the spear back as he reached. Mac caught the blade instead of the wood and sliced the meat of his thumb. Mac yowled and fell back, his hot blood running down his wrist. The goblin lunged and lunged again, the branches cracking under its efforts. Stupid goblin! Mac yelled and hurled his hammer at it. The claws of the hammer looped through the air 
and right down into the goblin's muzzle, a lucky shot cracking through the bone, burying the tool up to its handle and dropping the goblin with a grunt. It sagged against the branches holding it, its wicked eyes flickering to dull black. Mac sagged, then laughed. Exhilaration thrilled through him. He had done it. He had stood up against goblins, against three goblins. Maybe he could survive this cruel world after all. Ruby sat Mac on the side porch with his hand over the utility sink so she could stitch his thumb up. He moaned and squirmed during the first couple passes of the needle, earning him a stern reprimand, and she finally pinned his arm under hers so she could draw the thread through his skin. She ain't giving you no whiskey? Robin asked from beside him. What kind of backcountry operation is this if there ain't no whiskey? First, we just need him to settle down, Ruby grunted. Can you, like, sit on his chest or something? I can't keep his hand still. Hold on, Robin said. Let me get the whiskey first. I don't think I need to be pinned down, Ruby swept Mac's legs out from under him and dropped him back against the boards of the porch with a thump. Ow! Here it is, Robin said, returning with a big green glass bottle. Mac tried to wave her away. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I don't even like alcohol. Alcohol ain't here to be liked. It's here to be abused. Robin unscrewed the cap and tangled her fingers in his hair. She pulled his head back. Not too much now, Rob, Ruby said, just to dull the pain. Oh, this'll dull it all right, Robin drawled, tilting the bottle into his mouth. He gagged as the fiery liquid filled his mouth and throat. It shot up into his sinuses like a gasoline explosion. An entire mouthful dropped down his gullet, burning all the way, building a fire in his belly. He didn't even notice Robin straddling his chest, holding him down by the shoulders. Ruby knelt at his side, his arm trapped between her legs, isolating his thumb. She gripped it tight and lanced his tortured flesh with the needle. Mac opened his mouth to scream and instead spun in their grasp. The world lurched sickeningly every which way. He pressed himself against the ground, but that only seemed to make it worse. He heard himself screaming as he spun, like a spout of water going down the drain. Mac grew ponderous, his thumb dipped in hot oil, his heartbeat thudding in his ears. He opened his heavy eyelids and saw Robin holding him. He smelled her girlish sourness and oily hair and smiled foolishly up at her. You're warm, he said. Well, that was fast, Robin laughed. Zero to drunk in 15 seconds. Boots crossed the porch from the back. Wyatt spoke. There you are, Ruby. What on earth are you doing? Stitching up a boy who can't keep still. You want to grab his legs? Sure thing, but let's get this wrapped up fast. We don't got much time. Remember that other storm that's coming? Well, it's coming now. Not Saturday, but now. Rolling in off the ocean as we speak. And it's big. It's a big, dark storm. Uh-oh, Ruby said. We gotta get the animals together and button up. Yeah, we don't got much time. I'll do the barn if you do the house. Robin, you help Ed with the gates and whatever he's working on. You got an hour, and only an hour. I don't care if it's a gap in a fence or a lost lamb. You're indoors by, let's see, 11.30 and not a minute later. Understood. Aye, aye, Captain, Robin answered. Oh, here we go again, Ruby said, working on Mac's thumb. Storm season. Fighting season, Robin whispered to Mac. Let the games begin. 
Thanks for listening to Woe Is Me, book one of The Horror Wars. Make sure to tune in next week to see if our heroes can survive. Yet another thrilling adventure on The Unuseful Hour.